just um, on an airplane and we gave gum to my three and a half year old for the first time ever and he dutifully chewed it for three seconds and then swallowed it. And so he didn't know any better, but my eight year old looked to me terrified that, that he had done something very wrong and that we wouldn't be able to retrieve the gum until my three year old was 10. Welcome to the Merck Manual's Medical Myths Podcast, where we set the record straight on today's most talked about medical topics and questions. I'm your host, Joe McIntyre, and on this episode, we welcome Dr. Jonathan Gottfried. Dr. Gottfried is from the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia. He specializes in GI and gastroenterology and is the Director of Patient Safety and Quality Assurance at the Temple Digestive Disease Center. Dr. Gottfried also authors the GI sections of the Merck Manual. Today we're going to talk to him about some of the most common myths surrounding our stomachs, guts, and everything in between. Dr. Gottfried, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today. All right, so first let's begin with a question we see a lot around the early part of the year uh, and approaching the summer season as well when people want to get their bodies in shape. I'm talking, of course, about detoxes and specifically a colon detox. So are there any actual benefits of doing a colon detox, doctor? So it's a great question, and this is something that a lot of my patients always come in asking me about. And interestingly, when we want them to do a purge before their colonoscopy, that's something they kick and scream about and they don't want to do. But when it comes to doing a colon detox, it's the rave that everyone wants to be involved in and, and see if it would help them. My knowledge of, of colon detox is, as much as it seems that the scientific community knows, is that there's no known health benefit for a colon detox. I think, though, it's helpful for us to understand what a colon detox is and what people mean by it. There's many ways of doing a colon detox um, that I've seen patients come in asking about. A lot of them will use sort of an irrigant where they're drinking a lot of water or taking a laxative. Some people use different teas or enzymes that help them um, have bowel movements to, quote, detox their colon. But as far as my knowledge of the, the literature, um, there's no health benefit and there's actually a, a potential for a, a harm in doing a colon detox. And so it's not something that we typically recommend patients doing. So when it comes to a, let's say, a liquid diet, what's the difference there and are there any actual health benefits of a liquid diet? A lot of people will go on liquid diets, but often focus more on weight loss. Um, but some people think that by going on a, a liquid diet, they may be cleansing their colon. I think an important thing to know is that your body is detoxifying itself. What I mean by that is that your liver is in charge of clearing toxins out of your body, and your colon is in charge of secreting mucus and, and flushing things along to make sure that you're going sort of regularly, pardon the, uh, the pun. But uh, your, your colon is there to make sure that things are moving along and keeping the environment sort of clean. So patients will use irrigants, will use enemas to try to move things along and clear their colon out. I think generally when people think about detoxing, they're just trying to get rid of anything that's in their body. So they'll use any different method that they may find on the Internet. Again, though, I think it's, it's uh, any of these methods or there's not a lot of scientific data that they are tried and true and, and beneficial in the way that um, a lot of people claim they are. So obviously, as a, as a doctor who, who sees folks all the time, uh, deals with gastroenterology, I'm sure you have some, some wild stories about the strange things that, that your patients have uh, eaten accidentally or maybe and in sometimes intentionally. Uh, what are some of the, the oddest things that you've dealt with from things that your patients have swallowed? 
Yes, so this is the this is the common thing that we do see, um, and as you alluded to, there are unfortunately a lot of people who purposely ingest a lot of things, but we also have people who unintentionally ingest things, and some people who come in saying that they unintentionally did, but they intentionally did so. <laughs> um, of all the different things I've seen recently, we had a patient who swallowed a toothbrush, um, and interestingly, the toothbrush was in two pieces, so there was the head and then the body of the toothbrush. Um, so unclear exactly why that or how that happened, but um, we were able with our and with our endoscopes to, to fish out the uh, both the toothbrush head and the toothbrush body. Um, biggest concern there is that the the sharp edge of something can can cut. I had a patient early on in training who uh, was was doing some work outside. And he had a, a good luck medallion that he he actually chewed on, and it's something that he wore around his neck. But um, this time he had it in his mouth for some reason, and that got stuck in his esophagus. So uh, it wasn't it wasn't too uh, wasn't too lucky for him. But luckily <laughs> we got there and, and got it out. Um, and then just the garden variety um, on a almost weekly to several times a, a month basis, we're fishing pens or chicken bones or uh, big pieces of steak that people didn't chew properly. So tons of stuff to retrieve from the body um, and, and never, a, never a shortage, unfortunately. Um, the biggest thing is to make sure that you chew, especially with food and steak, and especially around the holidays, um, to chew your food well and, and make sure you're, uh, you're not just downing big pieces of turkey on Thanksgiving because that's, that's usually our biggest time to fish things out of people. I'm sure I've made that mistake once or twice or five or 10 times in my life. Uh, so right. when it comes to uh, parents, uh, say your child accidentally ingests something, do they call you? Should they call 911? What, what, are, the, what are the steps there? Parents should always know, uh, especially with the kids, to be able to call pediatricians. It may be hard to get in touch with, with doctors throughout the day. Um, and so 911 is always, if there's ever a concern, is always the, the, the first thing to call. Um, the biggest concern is ingestions. Um, so that's little toddlers or, or, um, or young kids who are going under the kitchen sink that isn't locked and ingesting um, bleach or, or other household cleaning products. That's an emergency that needs to get um, uh, figured out immediately. Um, another issue that we, I'm an adult gastroenterologist, but that we always talk about and train on is um, little kids who swallow button batteries. And that's not uh, that's not always a well-known issue, but it could be theoretically life-threatening. The problem is, is the button battery conducts electricity between the um, the, esoph the walls of the esophagus and can literally burn a hole within within the esophagus by conducting between the two walls of the esophagus. And so, a button battery is sort of our number one emergency, aside from an ingestion of of something that if anyone swallows, they have to come in immediately and kind of drop everything and take care of um, to to make sure that doesn't cause a problem. Other than that, I actually my my brother-in-law called me uh, a couple of months ago. They were they were at a uh, they were at the Ben and Jerry's factory in Vermont, and my niece lost a tooth eating uh, cookie dough ice cream. And so they, they called wondering what, what they should do. And generally, small things like that, like a tooth, uh, goes right through, and so it's nothing to be concerned about. But uh, he had easy access with me on speed dial. But always, if you don't know, it's, uh, it's good to call and make sure that, um, that your kid's okay. Great advice. Great advice. Now, speaking of digestion and moving things along in the body, uh, I know you hear a lot from your patients about 
constipation? What does that mean? How does it affect me? Is it serious? Uh, is it not serious? You know, what do you consult patients about when it comes to constipation? Does it depend on each person? How does that work? So constipation is a another one where we have to clearly define our terms. Constipation is uh, is in the eye of the beholder. So I have a lot of patients who come in and say I'm constipated when they're having a bowel movement every day. I have some people who are going a week or two weeks and they don't think that they're constipated. And a lot of it's relative. What I tell my patients, it's relative to your usual baseline. So if you take the normal population, um, regular bowel movements are one bowel movement every three days or up to three bowel movements in a day. And that's the general population of how, how frequently people are supposed to go to the bathroom. Now, some people might have more bowel movements than that. And as long as there's no weight loss or blood in the stool or any other alarm symptoms like that, um, that's not necessarily a concern. And some people may go longer than three days, but if that's their norm, that's not necessarily a bad thing, especially if they're not having pain or discomfort. And so it's really constipation, there, there's a range, but I think the important thing is, is there a change in what you usually do? And it has something changed and why has that changed? And that's the important thing to explore when you're, con- when you're concerned that you may be constipated. So essentially, the biggest question isn't the frequency or um, you know how often you're you're going, but whether it's a change from your normal movements. Exactly, and a, a thing I love to pull up for my patients is the Bristol stool chart. And so I I have eyeglasses, and so I, there's an eye exam chart in in every ophthalmologist's office. And so in the GI world, we have the Bristol stool chart, and I like to show that to my patients because it kind of helps standardize what bowel movements look like. And so it's a funny thing. I think a lot of patients kind of laugh at it when you pull up a chart of all these different forms of what stool is. Um, but there's seven forms of stool, um, ranging from type one, which is like a lumpy, bumpy, almost like a rabbit pellet, to a smooth sausage is like a type four, and type seven is like a puddle of water, um, like you turn on the faucet. And so that's in, in addition to the amount and frequency that people are going, it's important to also quantify what the stool looks like, because that could also tip off if they are constipated or have problems with gut health. So that's another thing to consider and that listeners can view is the Bristol stool chart just to kind of see where they think they fall out to guide if they think they're a constipated or have another problem. So let's switch gears a little bit from something that's coming out of the body to maybe something that's coming in the body. We hear this rumor a lot, or this myth a lot, uh, about when you eat a piece of gum, you swallow it, it stays in your body for 7, 10 years, something like that. Uh, is that really the case? Is, are there things that our bodies just can't digest when it comes to food products like uh, like gum? That's a great question because, and very relevant, I was just um, on an airplane and with my kids, we gave them gum uh, as we were taking off to, to help them from having their ears popping. And we gave gum to my three-and-a-half-year-old for the first time ever, and he dutifully chewed it for three seconds and then swallowed it. And so he didn't know any better, but my eight-year-old looked to me terrified that, that he had done something very wrong and that we wouldn't be able to retrieve the gum until my three-year-old was 10. So that's a common myth and um, something we don't hear so much in the adult GI world, but I think is out there is that things get stuck in your body. And gum is one, I think the, the people are concerned that it might stick to something, but um, I think we have to remember that the GI tract going all the way from the mouth all the way to the other end is a biological system and it's, it's, it, it's built to move things from the top down to the bottom. 
and so things typically will not get stuck in the in the uh, in the stomach or anywhere else along unless it's too big or there's something else with it. So an uncommon um, condition is where people eat their hair. It's a psychiatric condition, and so people can get big things called bezoars in their stomach or or beyond, and it serves as a nidus or an area that can collect more and more stuff. So um, people can get these huge kind of rocks or lumps that get stuck in their stomach for very long periods of time and sometimes have to get removed either endoscopically or surgically in extreme cases. But for regular gum chewers out there, if you accidentally swallow a gum, your piece of gum, it's not a, not a big deal and you should be moving it out in the next couple of days. <laughs> That's a relief. Uh, I'm going to stick with the digestion uh, side of things for a little bit. One thing that we've seen uh, online a lot, a big myth that we hear a lot, is indi- about indigestion. Uh, does indigestion happen simply because you eat too fast, you're trying to stuff food in your mouth, and that's that's as simple as it is, or is it more complex than that? So when we are little, we're always told by our parents not to eat too fast or we're going to get a stomach ache. And there is truth to that. Um, our our stomachs are, have a certain capacity of how much food that it, you can intake. And the, the reflex that will happen is, is vomiting if you take in too much food. Um, and right before that vomiting might be a signal of, of what we call dyspepsia or, or that the feeling of discomfort in the stomach signaling that you may have eaten too much food. Um, different people can hold different amounts of food. Um, I think the extreme example is going to be people who go to hot dog eating contests or other kinds of food contests in the summer. Um, people like that are eating a ton of food, and they're training their stomachs to be able to expand and accommodate large amounts of food, where if you don't do that and try to eat that much food, your body won't be able to handle it. In the most extreme circumstances, if you eat so much food, the stomach can distend so much that it can actually tear or perforate, which could be a life-threatening situation. So um, always good to eat at a normal pace and not try to stuff yourself and and take it slow because people can get um, a stomach ache by eating too fast. Thanks, Dr. Kaylee. More right after this. Did you know you can use MerckManuals.com to find in-depth content about hundreds of medical topics, including those that may be difficult to spell? Simply browse by using the letter spine search function on our website. It's the best first place to go for easy to understand medical content. Now, before we start eating food, uh, around 11 o'clock, 11.30 for some of us, uh, we start to get some stomach growls, uh, starts to feel uncomfortable in the stomach, and is, uh, you know, essentially we take it as, as a sign that it's time to eat. Is that really all it is? Is, is stomach growling just your body telling you, hey, it's time, to, it's time to start eating some food? That's a great question. Your body is trained to be able to want to eat food and digest food, and, and it follows sort of a different rhythm throughout the day. And so when we wake up in the, in the morning, um, there's already different enzymes and chemical reactions that are going on in our body that occur just by thinking about food. Uh, and, and so when you're hearing your stomach growl, that's, there's actually a scientific term. If you ever want to sound smart, it's called borborygmy. And borborygmy is a scientific term for a stomach growling. And what's really happening, happening is the folds in your stomach or the rugae are moving around and, and kind of rubbing against each other. Or the small intestine, also when you hear uh, sort of those higher pitch sounds, um, that could be your, your small intestine that, that's moving along. And what your body's doing is it's getting ready or is already ready to 
ingest food, but you haven't provided food for it. And so some of that, that those sounds that you'll hear, sometimes it's because you ate a bunch of food and your body's trying to move food along, but if you haven't eaten, it is that borborygmy. So, so the, the take-home is listen to your stomach. Are there ever any instances where your stomach growling is a sign to come see you, come to see a gastroenterologist? Um, I think you always have to listen to your gut. As I said in the beginning, if something's outside of your usual routine, it's always good to get it checked out, especially if you don't have a reason why. A growling stomach is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, There are certain conditions where if there's a blockage in your stomach or in your intestines, there's a very high-pitched stomach noise that you can hear, um, but that's very rare, and usually you're very sick and vomiting. So um, our worlds operate on the extreme in GI. There's a lot of things that are plain as day obvious, and then there's people don't really have a problem going on. They just have a normal stomach growling. Um, but I think it's important to know that if something feels very different or outside of the usual routine, it's important to get it checked out. Good to know. Good to know. Another myth we hear uh, or see a lot is about the causes of ulcers. Sometimes we'll hear it's stress, sometimes it's alcohol, sometimes it's spicy food, sometimes it's smoking. Uh, What are the causes of stomach ulcers and um, what should people do about it if they feel like they have one? So ulcer disease is a very common thing that we see in, in practice. The manifestations of ulcers are are abdominal pain, Um, and in the bigger extremes, people can have life-threatening bleeding or a perforation or a hole in the the stomach lining um, from an ulcer. And so ulcers happen for a variety of reasons, but effectively it's the body's lack of uh, of a barrier and defense, um, and you get sort of an erosion and cratering in the stomach wall or the small intestine wall. That can happen from a variety of reasons. The two most common things that we see are uh, people who use NSAIDs or aspirin, so NSAIDs being ibuprofen um, or any of the other pain relief medications that are anti-inflammatory pain relief medications, um, and as well people who have an infection called H. pylori. That's a bacterial infection that people pick up um, at various points in their life, um, really just from the environment. And H. pylori was shown to be a bacteria that can cause and generate ulcers. And so those are the two common causes of ulcers, but other things that can cause ulcers are smoking and alcohol. Really a lot of alcohol use or a lot of smoking will potentiate more severe ulcers or more severe disease. So you're usually going to see smoking and alcohol on top of someone who's taking a lot of ibuprofen could have a really big ulcer or a very significant bleed from their ulcer disease. A common thing that we see is people saying, I'm stressed out and I, I have an ulcer. And there, I think it's important to define what stress is. There's physiologic stress where we have very sick patients who are in the intensive care unit, let's say after a, a car accident or a bad infection. And in that situation, your body is not making the natural defenses it does to be able to prevent yourself from developing ulcers. So those patients can get ulcers from physiologic stress. Stress from the slings and arrows of life um, has always been associated with ulcer disease, but we don't have any data that it, that it actually causes it. So there's, there's epidemiologic or population-based studies that show in stressful situations, such as like a natural disaster, or in people who have behavioral or psychiatric conditions, there may be an increased incidence of ulcers in those populations, but there's no studies, to my knowledge, that show that stress actually causes ulcers. Another stomach condition that we hear about a lot uh, is bloating, and there's a lot of foods that we hear of that can cause bloating or reduce bloating. What foods do you know 
that can lead to bloating and what can people do about it? Before going into the different types of foods that can cause bloating, um, it's very important to note that people can have bloating and it could actually be an alarm symptom and something to be concerned about that needs to get seen. So for example, people can have blockages or problems moving um, air or, or food throughout their colon or intestines because of an obstructing or a blocking uh, cancer. So we that can happen in ovarian cancer, that can happen in colon cancer, where the stomach and abdomen can become very distended. And so bloating is a symptom we see all the time and is not concerning and actually having to do with diet, but it could be an alarm symptom and something to be concerned about. So um, it is very worthwhile to be evaluated by your physician. All that said, and as the big qualifier leading into this, that you need to investigate bloating. Um, bloating can also be caused just by simple things in the diet that the body cannot ingest appropriately. So the common thing that we see is, um, is people with lactose intolerance. And so that is the inability for the body to digest lactose. And it's a very common thing I see in my patients all the time who finally, after a couple months, wait to get in to see us, say, I'm having terrible bloating. I say, stop drinking three gallons of milk a day. And they come <laughs> back in two weeks later and they feel 100% better. So what that is, is your body, as you get older, loses the ability or, or the enzymes to break down proteins in milk. And that can lead to, to bloating as well. So it's a good thing to just try if you have a new bloating symptom that maybe you, you're drinking too much milk. Um, and it's really specifically milk over milk products. Um, we sometimes tell people to stop cheese and yogurt and other things, but it's really people who are, who are drinking milk. There's a whole other huge group of foods that can cause bloating. And this is where I do encourage patients to research online because there's a lot of good stuff, actually, of different foods that can cause bloating. Common ones that I advise my patients on are garlic and onions. And there's also the cruciferous vegetables. So that's like broccoli and cauliflower, which can cause really bad bloating. And another question uh, we hear a lot, another myth that we see, is this idea that nuts, seeds, and popcorn, when ingested, uh, can cause uh, diverticular disease. Uh, is that the case? So this is a very, very, very common question that we get. And I actually had a patient a couple of weeks ago who gave me a hug because they loved eating almonds and they had an episode of diverticulitis 20 years before. And they had been told by their doctor at the time, do not eat nuts, it's going to give you another episode of diverticulitis. So I'd seen them a year ago, and I told them that's a myth. It's something that was taught for years. I learned that actually in medical school. But recent data has shown that it's unfounded and actually could help people with diverticular disease. So a year later, this patient came in and saw me, and he had not had an attack of diverticulitis and was eating his almonds daily, and I got a hug for it because uh, I debunked that myth. So the original idea is eating nuts or popcorn, that these foods, because they're, they're hard, could get stuck in diverticula, which are sort of outpouchings or weak spots in the colon wall. And then the nuts can plug up those areas and then they can get infected. What recent data has shown actually is that it's the opposite, that especially popcorn and almonds are, are higher in fiber. And high fiber diets are shown to improve diverticular disease and complications from diverticular disease, including bleeding or the infection called diverticulitis. Since we've been kids, a lot of us uh, have been told before we go in the pool, before we go 
run in the ocean to swim, we should wait 30 minutes after we eat before we get in any water body because it's going to either mess with our bodies or mess with our stomachs. Is that really the case? Is there any really reason to worry or to wait 30 minutes before you uh, go into the water after eating? So convincing someone to wait to swim for 30 minutes is a tease. So I can't tell you exactly to wait 30 minutes, but it is smart to wait a little bit from the time that you eat and are ingesting food until the time you exercise. So the scientific reason behind that is that your body uses a huge amount of metabolism, circulation, and energy to be able to digest food. It's a big it's a big workout for the body, even though you just have to sit there and and let your body do its thing. Um, but while you're digesting food, a lot of the blood that would supply your muscles and, and other organs in your body while you're doing exercise is really getting pulled into the, into the gut to be able to, to help you digest the food. So when people are, have just eaten and they're already running a marathon in their stomach and then you go out and swim, you're putting your body sort of in overload and that's where the cramping sensation comes is the, the body doesn't have enough blood in circulation to tease all parts of the body. Um, and so that's, that's where the idea of that comes from. So it's not always going to happen, but it makes sense to exercise first or to swim first and maybe snack a tiny bit um, and eat your big, huge uh, meal afterwards. So, Dr. Gottfried, thanks for answering all of these questions here. I think it was a fantastic conversation. If people who are listening to this have any questions of their own uh, about some gastrointestinal issues or GI tract issues, where can they go online for some information? A great resource to go to is MerckManual.com. It has a ton of well-researched and evidence-based information and a well-trusted source that patients can find a bunch of answers to many of their questions and hopefully debunk some of the myths out there. And, of course, for our listeners outside of the U.S. and Canada, we invite you to visit msdmanuals.com for more information. Well, Dr. Godfrey, thanks again for joining us. And remember, as we say at the Merck Manuals, medical knowledge is power. Pass it on. Thank you. Thank you.